Father's Day because they feel like uh, they're just going to be told all of the things that they're not doing. Guys, this isn't, de- this isn't designed to be a beat-down sermon. It's designed to be a build-up sermon. I want to encourage you about being a father because, listen, those of us who are fathers, no one has arrived. And what we are, we're fellow strugglers, okay? I had one guy that, that left from the first service, and he said, you know what? He said, we learn how to be a father too late. He said, I wish I would have learned 40 years ago. And he's right. When we finally start to figure this father thing out is when we're empty nesters. Some of you say, well, you tell your parents, you never treated us like this. That's right, because we didn't have it figured out. But now as grandparents, we've got it figured out. And so we're, we're parenting the, the way that we're grandparenting the way we should have parented in the first place, probably. And so, uh, but, but it's a destination. I mean, it's not a destination. It's a journey. We're all walking it together. And I think, I, think, I think all the fathers here want to be, if I were to ask you, do you want to be a good or a great father? I think everybody would say, man, I want to be a great father. I really do. But it doesn't come as natural for us as it does for women to be moms, I think. You know, there's that maternal instinct. And, and, and it shows up in some awkward family moments when we realize that, you know, that's, dad probably is not the best thing. And so... I found a few awkward family photos to share with you, and let's see the first one. I mean, who gets a picture made with their little girl and a chainsaw? Honey, I love you almost as as much as this chainsaw. I I love the face on the baby. Hope he didn't mount her next to. Now look at this. This kid, 15 years from now, is going to be on America's Most Wanted. I mean, who in their right mind gives their kid an axe and you can look at his face? He's determined for somebody. Every dad wants to sleep next to a kangaroo at some point in their life, right? Awkward. Um, Notice the feet. Not the duck feet, the, the child's feet. In the duck's mouth, right? And dad's oblivious to it. One more. This guy thinks practice makes perfect. He's getting ready to be a dad, but I want you to look at the cat's face. The cat's like, no, I'm not enjoying this one bit. All right? Um, We all do crazy stuff. All right? We do crazy stuff, but none none of these guys are as crazy as Michael Latito. All right. Now you say, who in the world is Michael Latito? He was diagnosed at the age of nine with a, a mental disorder called PICA, which causes you to eat things that are non-food items. Typically, it involves eating dirt or eating plastic. They found Michael eating the family television set. True story. And so he decided to take this abnormality that he had in eating strange objects, and he made a career out of it until he died in 2007. They say of natural causes, but I question that. It's estimated that he ate nine tons of metal during his life. Doctors would examine him, keep a close eye on him. They said that his stomach lining was twice as thick as the average human's, and so he would do shows where he would eat metal, and he would always start with some mineral oil, And then he drank lots of water as he ate. But um, here's some of the things that he ate. I found a list. He ate 18 bicycles, 15 shopping carts, seven televisions and six chandeliers, two beds, a pair of skis, a water bed. He ate a coffin. And so that was the first time that there was a coffin inside of a man instead of a man inside of a coffin. 
And it took him two years, but he ate a Cessna 150 airplane. I remember being told when my kids were young, Dad, you're really weird. No, that's weird, okay? Makes, makes, if, if, you've told your, if you've told your parent that they are weird, listen, that's weird, your parent's normal, okay? I want to talk to you today about being the best dad that you can be. The world measures a man by his brawn, by his bucks, by his brain, but I don't think that's the way God measures a man. I want to show you from Scripture what it looks like to man up what it looks like to man up and be the father that God intends you to be. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians chapter 6. You have a Bible that looks like this. It's on page 814. If not, it's in the New Testament about halfway back. All right? The words will be on the screen. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you and you may, you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. So I want to bring out three points from our scripture passage and then just bullet point some life application that's there on your sermon sheet if you... I got one of the connection cards today. The first thing is we need to give children the right directives. The word directive is defined as authoritative instruction or direction. Every child needs authoritative direction and instruction in their life. As parents, we teach them the right direction. That involves a few things according to what Paul says here. First of all, we teach them what is demanded. What is demanded? Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You need to understand that's in the imperative. That is, that is not optional. If you're, if you're a young person today, this is not a suggestion. This is a command from God's word to, to obey your children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, any of you that have had children, did you find that obedience was a natural tendency? You know, my child just, I mean, from the womb, when they started growing up, they just naturally obeyed. No, you have to teach them obedience, right? We have to teach them to do it. That's one of the first lessons. For instance, they're in, they come in the kitchen and, and mom's cooking something and the stove's hot and you tell them not to touch it and they go to touch it. You smack their hand. Why? Not because you're mean, because you're teaching them obedience and sometimes obedience will stop you from pain in your life. And so we have to, te we have to teach them how to tell the truth, right? I mean, anybody have a child that I mean from day one, they were truth tellers. Never told a lie in their life. Um, if you believe that, I have the, the part of that London Bridge in Arizona that you might be interested in purchasing from me when church is over. We teach them to tell the truth. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked go astray from the room, womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. Now you say, well, my child's not wicked. No, but they have a wicked nature when they're born. They're born sinners and need to be saved. Most of us have heard Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way they should go. We know the second half of it, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. That is a premise and not a promise, okay? What I mean by that is a, it's a premise. It is generally true as a rule that if you train up your child in the way they should go, when they're old, they'll not depart from it, okay? But why does Solomon word it this way? Solomon's the wisest man in the world, according to Scripture, ever, ever lived, and he says, train up a child in the way he should go. Why does he say that? Because... If we don't train them in the way they should go, they will naturally go the way they shouldn't go. 
Do you understand that? I mean, by na- they're just going to veer off course naturally. They're going to walk in the way that they shouldn't go if we don't train them in the way that they should go. And listen, when it comes to obedience, parents don't lie to your kids. You're like, what? Here's how it plays out. If you do that one more time, I'm going to whip you. No, I mean it. If you do it one more time, I'm going to whip you. You just lied to them. Listen, teach them there are consequences for disobedience. If you say you're going to whip, I'm not talking about beating the child, but if you tell them you're going to whip them, give them a swat. Okay, the first time, don't don't make them, don't say it three or four times. I mean it, I'm going to do it. No, what you're teaching them is there's no consequences to disobedience. Or there's delayed consequences to disobedience. Teach them obedience. Is obedience just for the sake of the parents, young people? No. Listen to what Paul wrote this, a similar passage in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3.20, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So the real motivation for obedience is to please the Lord. If you're a student, you ought to obey teachers because it pleases the Lord. If you're a citizen, you ought to obey police officers because it pleases the Lord. You know, if you were um, an employee, you should obey your boss because it pleases the Lord. If you're a child, you should obey your parent because it pleases the Lord. So we teach them what is demanded. Secondly, what is desirable. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is what's Paul say right this is right in an age of political correctness and moral relativism and and uh, outcome-based education and values clarification I love those three words this is right no 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 room for error I mean he says it's a right thing for children to obey their parents and whose responsibility is it to teach children the difference between right and wrong not the teachers it's not even the churches it's the parents it's our obligation as parents to teach them that let me tell you three things you ought to be teaching your child until that they should learn before they fly the coop at 18 or at 30 or whenever they fly the coop all right number one you should teach them there's a difference between right and wrong and God in his word tells us which is which second thing you teach them you are to do right and not wrong And the third thing you teach them is, if you do wrong and not right, you will suffer consequences. We teach them those three things before they leave the home. Verse 2 and verse 3 is actually a quote from Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment of God's tent. Excuse me. And and he he says here that um, honor, honor. So one passage in, in Exodus 20, it says, honor your parents and Paul's writing, it says, obey, what's the difference? One is internal, one is external. One is an attitude, one is an action. See, you can can obey your parents without honoring them. I call it um, obedience with an attitude. I'm obeying on the outside, but I'm not obeying on the inside. You know, that's not honoring them. Now listen, if you're a young person, there'll come a day when you move out and have a family of your own and you no longer have to obey your parents, okay? But according to Scripture, there, there never comes a day when you stop honoring your parents. If that's in Scripture, show it to me. I've not found it. And what that means is, listen, if you're 60 and your parents are still alive, you should still continue to honor them to this day. Why? Because they're your parents. That's what Scripture tells us we are to do. Not only that, it, not only what's demanded and desirable, but listen, it pays dividends. Did you know that? I mean, look at the text. Look at what it says. 
Verse 3 is the reward. He says, uh, honor your parents, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Here's the promise. Here's the dividends. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Same thing that Exodus 20 says. It's a promise. God says, listen, you treat your parents well and, and, and that I'm pleased with that and I believe that God's saying he extends the life of those who are willing to honor and obey their parents. I don't know how else to read that. So we give them the right directive. Secondly, we give them directives with the right demeanor. In other words, it's not just in what we say but in how we say it. And there are two things that I want to point out about demeanor here. Now you remember when when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter and verse breaks. It was just one long letter to the church at Ephesus, right? And so we get to the end of chapter 5, and we disconnect it from chapter 6, but it's not disconnected. It's just, it's just the flow of a train of thought that Paul's writing in. He ends chapter 5 talking about the family, and he begins chapter 6 talking about the family. And, and so, guys, let me tell you, one of, the, one of the best things a father can do for his children is be devoted to his wife. I mean, your, your kids ought to see you kiss your wife once in a while. They're probably, if they're small especially, they're gonna go, ooh, but that's okay. Why? You're showing them that you love their mother. And that's one of the greatest things that you can do. And by the way, through the years, I've heard more from men than from women, but more from men, I've heard them both say this, well, I just don't love them anymore. No, you choose not to love them anymore. Love is an act of the will. It's not an emotion, okay? Every day you have to make a decision, I'm going to love this person, all right? Because our, our feelings lie to us sometimes. You ever felt something was true only to find out it wasn't true? You can't trust your emotions. Every day when I get up, I make a conscious decision, I'm going to love my wife. It's an act of the will, so we, we should be devoted to our wives. Now, it, it, loving your wife is so important to God. If God says something one time, that's significant, right? I mean, if he says one thing in his word, then that's pretty significant. If he says something twice, he says, this is really important. If he says something three times in nine verses, it's kind of like shouting, yo, pay attention here. This, I'm talking to you. Three times in nine verses at the end of chapter 5, he says, husbands, love your wives. Not once, not twice, but three times. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's sacrificially and selflessly. And then in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. Verse th chapter 5, verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. So what does it mean there to love your wife? I, I think we hear, use the words nourish and cherish a lot. And I think those are two good words. The word nourish means to bring to maturity. It's a picture of feeding a, a baby so that it doesn't become malnourished, all right? So we as husbands are to give what fills our wives emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Now, we don't have a problem with the physical part, we provide for them, but sometimes we struggle with meeting their emotional needs, their spiritual needs. Gary Smalley likened our wives to flowers in one of the books he wrote. Here's what he said. You know, guys, your wife is like a flower and you're the soil for your wife. 
And oftentimes, the soil that we have our wives in is very acidic or caustic. It's one that is constantly beating her down, constantly pointing out what she doesn't do right, and is not watering her, is not nourishing her, is not taking care of her very well. And we get mad at her because she's all wilted. And so what do we do? We go and yell at her flower. We say things like, you need to perk up. You need to start blooming. Why aren't you blooming? She says, you haven't watered me for weeks. You know, if you'd water me, if you'd give me some plant food, if you'd help me. But we don't see it like that. Yet that's the husband's job, to nourish his, nourish his wife, to feed her, and to meet those needs. I think he's right. Maybe if she's not blooming, it's because the soil that you've got her in right now. But not only do we nourish, he says we are to cherish. And the word cherish is a protection word. It means to warm. It's, the picture, it's a picture of a, a, a hen with her brood, and she's keeping them warm and safe. When you cherish your wife, she understands she's a treasure. That she's a treasure. She's that valuable to you. If she doesn't feel treasured, that's a danger. Men, you want your children to honor and obey you? Be devoted to your wife. The second thing, do not distress your children. Look at verse 4. He says, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. In Colossians 3.21, Paul wrote it just a little bit differently. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Now, it's addressed to fathers, but I think either parent here can do this. We can encourage or we can discourage. We can, we can beat them down, stay on their case 24 hours a day, or we can build them up. It's really all, this point is really all about how you say what you say. Proverbs 16.21, the wise in heart are called discerning, and look at this, Gracious words promote instruction. Get a lot more ants with sugar than you do with vinegar, however that saying goes, right? Gracious words. Thirdly, give them directives for the right design for life. For the right design. Now, the first, the first one of these we've already covered. Discipline them when it's appropriate, all right? Discipline them when it's appropriate. If they disobey, and make the discipline proportionate to the punishment proportionate to the crime, okay? But the second thing is, direct them in the way that is right. As a parent, you have two tools in your toolbox, and you ought to be using both of them. The first one's discipline. The second one's admonition or building up or encouraging. Gives them, it gives them direction. We, we ought to teach them to to learn God's Word, to love God's Word, to live in God's Word. I came across something this week called a parent's prayer. I tried to find out who wrote it, and every site I, I found it on, it said anonymous or unknown. I'm telling you, I wish I had this prayer 32 years ago when we were expecting our first child. I want to read to you the prayer, and if, if you're a parent, you want me to send this to you, let me know. Uh, shoot me an email, I'll email it to you, but it says, and I, and I quote, Heavenly Father, make me a better parent. Teach me to understand my children, to listen patiently to what they have to say, and to answer all their questions kindly. Keep me from interrupting them or criticizing them. Make me as courteous to them as I would have them be to me. Forbid that I should ever laugh at their mistakes or resort to shame or ridicule when they displease me. May I never punish them for my own selfish satisfaction or to show my power. Let me not tempt my child to lie or steal, but 
Guide me hour by hour that I might demonstrate in everything that I say or do that honesty produces happiness and holiness. May I ever be mindful that my children are children, and I I should not expect them to have the judgment of adults. Let me not rob them of the opportunity to wait on themselves and to make decisions. Bless me with the bigness to grant them their reasonable request and the courage to deny them the privileges I know could do them harm. Make me fair, just, and kind, and fit me, O Lord, to be loved, respected, and imitated by my children, and help me always remember that better parents raise better children. I think that poem is right. So let me close with some very practical life application. Guys, here's some ways you can be the dad that you need to be. They're, they're printed there on your, on your note sheet. First of all, be intentional early. Oftentimes when our children are first born and they're preschoolers, we, you know, we don't put a lot of effort into that because we think, well, we've got a lot of time with them. We, we, we get it all together eventually. Everything I've read says that so much of our identity is developed in the first five years of life. And so be intentional in your, in your parenting early. Psychology Today article I read said, even from birth, children who have an involved father, an involved father, are more likely to be emotionally secure, confident to explore their surroundings, and as they grow older, have better social connections. We all want that for our kids, but it involves being involved in their life early. Second is consistency. Children need it, and we as parents often lack it. Do as I say, not as I do. All Pro website, allpro.com, I think it's uh, Tony Dungy's website. He says consistency is king when it comes to parenting. Third, recognize they do as you do, all right? Children don't become what, they, what we say. They become what we do. And have you ever noticed their little parents, our little parrots? They just repeat what they hear, and sometimes they repeat things, and you're thinking, oh, God, I wish I hadn't said that. It's kind of like the preacher that came over to the house for dinner. And while they were getting dinner ready, the little boy gets his piggy bank and he brings it out and he hands it to the preacher. And the preacher says, well, what do you want me to do with this? And he said, I'm giving it to you. And he says, well, why would you give me your piggy bank? And he says, well, daddy says, you're the poorest preacher we've ever had at our church. You know, he's just repeating what he had heard. And so, so be careful what you say because kids will repeat it. And not only will they say what you say, they'll do what you do. Whatever we're becoming, so are they. Fourth is limitless love. Children need unconditional love and acceptance, hear me, regardless of their behavior. That doesn't mean that you approve of their behavior, but you need to separate them from their behavior. You may put it this way. Child, I will always love you because you have the position of being my son or daughter. I'm not always going to like your performance, but I'll always love you because of your position as my child. You're my child. Nothing will ever change that. So they need to understand that. Even when they've done wrong and disappointed you, don't let them question if you love them. Number five, guys, love is spelled T-I-M-E. Doesn't matter what else you give them. You can give them money. You can give them gifts. um, But nothing replaces time. And they need both quality time and quantity time. I mean, they need time with their dads. I read, I read a study, I think it was a Michigan State University study this week, and they studied what we say as dads, and the first three, I was so discouraged as I read those three, and I think it's so true. 
The top three things that they said dads say from their research is, one, I'm too tired. Two, we don't have the money. And three, be quiet. Man, spend time with them. Love them. Number six, go ahead and say it. Don't miss a teachable moment. Are there any perfect parents in here? I didn't think so, all right? Unless you haven't had any kids yet, then, then you're still perfect. But once you have a child, you'll stop being a perfect parent. If you make a mistake as a parent, own it. Tell them, man, I messed up. I'm sorry. They already know you messed up. Okay, so you're not, you're not fooling them. But when you take ownership of it, then you're teaching them this is what a godly man does when he makes a mistake. He says, I'm sorry. He owns it. And so go ahead and say it. Number seven, don't let time pass you by. If your child moves out on their 18th birthday, you, would, you will have had 6,570 days with them. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's not. I mean, I counted them up today. It was easy because I had a birthday a few weeks ago, and I've had 20,820 days already. So 6,500 pales in comparison to the total number of years, and I hope I still got a few more thousand to live. But how you spend those 6,570 days will have a lifelong impact on your son or daughter. Lifelong. Number eight, teach them work ethic and the value of a dollar. A child who understands how to work hard is, is uh, most likely going to become a responsible hard-working adult if we listen if we don't give them opportunities to earn what they have or what they want we are creating this this whole thing about entitlement my generation of parenting we've created this monster called entitlement we did it with good with good intentions we we said i want to provide for my kids the things that i didn't have when i was a child and so rather than giving them the opportunity and the motivation to work for it we just provided it for them i worked for my first car i, I paid for it myself i bought i bought pay for my own insurance but when we pro, we want to provide those things for our kids they grow up into adults thinking everything ought to just be given to them why because they're entitled to it everything's always been handed to them before and so teach them hard work. Teach them the value of a dollar. Number nine, let them be children. Here's a shocking statistic. Children would be children 100% of the time. <laughs> They're going to act like a child 100% of the time. So be patient. Some things just aren't worth getting upset over. You know, your room's a pigsty. Well, yeah, it may be. But compared to the problems you could be having with that child, that's a minor thing. So, so major on the major and minor on the minor. Number 10, praise and pray. I was reading this week, a, a dad asked his son, what is it that I do that shows you the most love? How, how do you know you are loved? And I want you to hear that son's response. He said, and I quote, when you praise me for what I do right, not just notice when I do wrong. That's when I feel loved. After 18 years, we're going to release them back to the one who gave them to us. The Bible talks about them being a man who has many children like, like arrows in a quiver. Nobody who has arrows just walks around says, saying, hey, look at my arrows. Aren't they nice? 
Arrows are designed for one purpose, and that's to be shot and to shoot them straight. And so we should raise our children with the understanding that they are but arrows for, for a, a brief period of time, and it's our job to raise them upright so that when we shoot them out into the world, they fly straight. These, these steps will help us do that. Some of you know the name Mitch Album. He's an author. He wrote Tuesdays with Maury. Um, he wrote uh, Five People You Meet in Heaven. That's a great book, by the way. It's about 100 pages, and I'd encourage you to read it. It really causes you to think. But he wrote an article in 2014 on parenting based on something he had saw. It was a Father's Day article based on something he had saw on television on ABC's The View. Now, they have a massive female audience, all right? Terry Crews, he's an actor. He's, you, you probably have seen him. He was an all-American defensive end at Western Michigan University. In all of the, the shows he's in, he's really muscular, African-American guy, and, and they always play up on his strength and usually kind of make him to be out to, to be a, a really strong but not really smart guy. And he's had voiceovers, I think, in all three Expendable movies. He was on The View that day, and he made this comment. There are some things only a father can give you. Well, needless to say, the host took issue with it. Social media blew up over it. People were making all kinds of comments. And so he went on. He says, a father gives you your name. Whoopi Goldberg joked like, you mean like a Lion King gives you your name? He said, then a father gives you security and, and your confidence. Um, Co-host Jenny McCarthy, who's raising a son on her own, she shot back, I'm a single mom, and I guarantee you I can give my son all of those things. And there was this high-pitched debate that went on for several minutes. The, 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 the cast of The View, they paid homage to single moms, to widows, and to gay parents, but they never gave any respect to dads. And that's what caused Mitch Album to write his article. He pondered, how have we gotten where, where somebody can say on national television there are some things only a father can give you and people take issue with it. What, what brought us there? I close with the end of his article. Album says, what does a father bring to the table? I can cite a few things I got from my own dad. Strength, quiet confidence, discipline, responsibility, and love. All displayed differently than my mother, which was fine. My, my father taught me how to be a husband, how to respect a woman, when to lead and when to support. It's true, he said, not all men are like my dad, but plenty are. And fatherhood didn't suddenly, after thousands of years, lose its value. It may be trendy to dismiss dads as little more than fertilizer, but it's not true. In fact, it's pretty foolish. Such is our world where a comment like Cruz brings a tsunami. Album says, funny thing is, I remember someone from my childhood frequently saying he needs his father in order to do that. It was my mother who said that, he said. Dads are important. Invest in your child's life. It will pay dividends the rest of your life, hopefully. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the kind of fathers that we need to be. Thank you, God, that this is not a destination. It's a journey, and there are none of us who have arrived. 
Father, the only Father present in this room that's arrived is you, not us. We are prone to make mistakes. And Lord, when that happens, I just pray that we would own it and and go on. God, I pray that you would move during this invitation, that your Spirit's already been drawing us to the response you would have us to make, and now that you simply would be pleased with our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.